Hey, Demystifying Diversity podcast listeners. Just a quick note at the top of this episode, our sound quality for this particular episode isn't exactly what we would want it to be, but please stick with us. Listen, the content is incredible. We just used a different streaming platform than usual, and the sound wasn't quite up to our exacting standards. But again, this is a phenomenal episode with content that you will not want to miss. So please, please, please stay tuned, bear with us. And again, I think it'll be worth the effort and worth taking the time to listen. Welcome to the Demystifying Diversity podcast, where each week we explore topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Dara Lise Lyons, and I'm speaking to you today from the stolen Lenape lands known as Philadelphia, utilizing the colonized space of the internet. And I'm Zach James, also occupying stolen Lenape lands. Thanks for joining us today for our first Q&A episode of season two. We're doing things a little differently this season, and I think you'll be excited by the changes. Yeah, and speaking of changes, you'll probably notice that it's Zach and me today, and we're joined by a guest as well. But a familiar voice is missing, and if you're a subscriber to our newsletter, you'll have gotten the announcement that Anna Marie Jones, one of the co-creators and early partner of the Demystifying Diversity podcast, has stepped back from the podcast. We're really excited for her. She's running for Radnor Township Third Ward Commissioner. Yes. Darylise and I are so happy for you and rooting for you, Anna Marie. But that does remind me, if you're listening to this podcast and you've not received our newsletter, go to DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com and sign up. All newsletter subscribers have a chance to win signed copies of Demystifying Diversity, embracing our shared humanity and the accompanying workbook during each and every Q&A episode. Yeah. So as I mentioned, and as Zach mentioned, we're doing things differently this season. And one of my absolute favorite changes is that for each of our Q&A episodes, instead of just hearing from us, we'll be joined by a subject matter expert with intimate knowledge of each of the podcast topics. And today we have an incredible guest who's agreed to be with us and speak to us and speak to you about the topics of indigenous resilience, culture, land, the seventh generation principle, and so, so much more. So today, Adam Waterbear DePaul is with us. And Adam is a tribal council member of the Lenape Nation of Pennsylvania, where he also holds the positions of story keeper and coordinator of the Rising Nation River Journey. Adam co-curates the Lenape Cultural Center in Easton, Pennsylvania, and the exhibit Existing Artistry, Enduring Presence, the Lenape Nation of Pennsylvania at Temple University. Adam is a PhD candidate and instructor at Temple with a primary research area in cultural and mythological studies, and he's the co-founder and president of Native American and Indigenous Studies at Temple. So Adam, thank you so much for being here with Zach and me today. Thank you for having me. I was really struck by your work with existing artistry and during present. So can you speak a little bit about that and about the importance of recognizing the enduring presence of the Lenape Nation? Sure. And that the exhibit to which you refer, it, it was amazing in that it really encompassed exactly what you mentioned now, the importance of noting that we are still here. 
you know, history has to be remembered. It's, it's vitally important. It has to be studied and remembered, but we can't stop there. And for so long, if Native Americans in the United States were offered any mention at all, we were and are still offered that mention as some kind of historical artifacts that you study as a, a people that once were uh, as a stage in the development of the United States. And that is one of the biggest struggles that all Native American societies you know, really try to get past today is letting people know that we are still here. We are a people that live among everybody else. And the existing artistry exhibit was wonderful because it was an exhibit, of course, and it did feature some of our traditional artwork, traditional regalia, traditional drum paintings and things that would have been found all throughout our history. But right alongside and with them, we have our, our newer regalia, newer venues of artistry like photography that our national members are doing and it turned into a wonderful we didn't really plan that going into it that was an exhibit that wonderful group uh, native american indigenous studies at temple they designed that with the center for humanities at temple and we didn't all go into it saying let's make sure this is past and present it just kind of developed that way and as it did, we realized, well, this is perfect. And then we, we pushed even more to make sure that we were doing diligence to all our traditions and our ancestral ways of doing things while highlighting all of our youth and our contemporary members and what they're doing today. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. You know, I'm so glad that you spoke about the history is important to remember and also Native people are here. And that is something in all of the interviews that I did throughout this season, each person that I interviewed throughout this season shared about the importance of recognizing that Indigenous people are here. And they spoke about the deliberate and indirect, maybe unintentional, but invisibilization of Indigenous history and Indigenous people and the need to bring greater visibility to people past and present. And I think that maybe someone listening might not totally understand the importance of why it's important to recognize that people are here, present tense. But can you speak a little bit about some of the dangers that happen when that invisibilization is allowed to remain unchecked? Well, one of the most obvious, most common talking points that people are, are aware is that this is how you get things like the school mascots and the, the business logos that portray us with spears or in religious regalia or any number of things that still plant us in that wild west, if not the colonial frontier. And the damage that does, the most obvious damage is simply common sense at this point, right? We have pictures uh -huh. of the color of your skin that are inaccurate and just stereotypes or the shape of your face. But the underlying problem that isn't as upfront is even if mascots or, or logos don't seem to be outwardly insulting with blatant racial stereotypes, they still put us in the past. 
they still put us as a people that once were. You never see a mascot or a logo of a young Native American person holding a cell phone or wearing a t-shirt. And the damage that this does is as much subconscious as conscious. On the conscious level, we have people asking, well, are we not important anymore? Did we stop being important when the tales of us riding horses and shooting buffalo were gone? Is that all there is to mention about us? And the answer that these kind of images give is, yes, that's when you were important. But underneath, our, and I'm probably going to keep coming back to our youth, I work with the youth within my own nation. And the youth grow up with these ideas and these images, and they internalize this idea that, oh, my heritage is one that used to be very significant and important in the United States. And it, it might not feel negative. You know, they might say, I have very much pride in, in those traditions and our role in the history of America. But that's the narrative they internalize. And they don't internalize the, the understanding that their culture is still significant and that they are still a people here. So it contributes not only to blatant stereotypes, but to people, and especially our younger members, actually not walking towards their culture because they think their culture is past. Wow. Thank you for, for saying that. I actually didn't think of it from that perspective. And one thing related to it that I'm, I'm kind of curious about, Adam, every speaker we had on our Indigenous episodes talked about the importance of knowing where they come from. Give us a little bit about how important this is in your experience and how does that really define who you are today, who your family is today? There is absolutely something of deep personal significance in having a tie to the land that you're on. And for us, you are both here in what we call the Lenape Hoking, the indigenous lands of the Lenape. And as far back as any of our cultural stories go, they involve this area because this is where we come from. Now, there's nothing wrong with not being on that land. You know, as, as you're aware, we have relations all across the country. We have diaspora who were forced out of our homeland. And they are as much Lenape and have as important cultural and, and rich history as we do. But for those of us who were not forced out and who do still remain here, when we tell our stories, we look around and we see the, the elements of our stories, of our creation story, of our emergence story, the animals, the, our relations, the animals that exist in some of our most important culture hero stories are the animals of this area. As Now to take off my cultural personal hat and to put on my academic hat for a minute, it's fascinating to trace cultures and their stories. You can see how they've moved and developed those who have moved, those who have gone through those, those terrible journeys. You can see their stories developing to the environments that they come from and incorporating different animals. We don't have stories of buffalo in our cultural mm -hmm. stories. We didn't have them out here. We didn't smudge with sage. Sage doesn't grow out here. We didn't have that beautiful turquoise jewelry and adornment 
that our Western diaspora have. Turquoise doesn't grow out here. So what we have is a tie to our land. We have a tie to our red clay out here by the Delaware, and, and those are our colors. And our heroes are muskrat and beaver and bear who are out here in the east. And when our chief Bob tells the story of Meesing, when he gets hit with a mountain, he'll point and say it was most likely one of these mountains up here in the Poconos that you can see. So the tide of the land isn't just symbolic, it is, it is real. And it is something that links you to your culture. Wow. You know, I so appreciate you speaking about that and personalizing it and also sort of really giving people a sense of how important land is. I believe land should be important for all of us, like to know where we come from and where we are and, and where we're rooted. I think, you know, when you're talking specifically about storytelling and about culture and about the preservation of history, something that just came into my mind is Simon Moya Smith. He talked about something like everything you think you know about indigenous people, forget it and start over, he said. And I was thinking about there's sort of the education that you're talking about, which is indigenous people and culture storytelling within that community and within that space. And I'm thinking about people who exist outside of that space who maybe don't have access to those stories, to those narratives, to that history. Can you speak a little bit about the need for unlearning and relearning for people? And especially, I know you're an educator. So like, can you talk a little bit about that? How do people who are listening to this start that process of unlearning what is false or what they might imagine and then relearning what is more true, what is more authentic, what is more accurate? The absolute best way and probably the only complete right answer is to go to the indigenous community is to learn from them and that doesn't have to mean coming to their council meetings it can mean that if they invite you in but having indigenous speakers come to your classrooms and that's speaking to a teacher at that level but also have indigenous people come into your administration have them look at your curriculum have them look at your syllabi. It's wonderful to, to bring one of us in to talk to a class for a day. That's wonderful. And I thank every class that has asked us to do that. But that's just one day. And the question you're asking about unlearning the misinformation, about deconstructing the incorrect history that we've learned, that needs to happen at a level of administration and at a level of curriculum development. So the best way is to have us come in and help with that. I really appreciate you saying us as well, Adam, because I think that I know we're having this Q&A and you're the featured voice on this one episode. But also at the same time, you know, we incorporated a number of different voices, right? Recognizing that still we won't get all perspectives around this issue, but we want to give people a number of different voices and, and possibilities, right? That they can begin to learn from and through. And I think that one of the mistakes that people make is believing that individuals can act as representatives, right? So I'll have one teacher come in and give a lecture and therefore we can check that box that we've we've done that. We've had an indigenous voice and therefore we don't have to deal with it again for another year. But I think there's, I really just wanted to point out that I love that you spoke about us and we and you use more plural language because I think it's important for listeners to really 
get that. This is not a one-time thing. It's not learning from one specific source. Like there is a richness and a variety and a diversity of Native voices that really needs to be honored. And you did a great job in the episodes that I listened to it at pointing that out and at making sure those were talking points. And it is incredibly important. Like you and like your other guests said, we use these terms indigenous people and Native American as if that says something, as if that is some bracket of people, when within those terms there are hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of people, all with different voices and cultures and stories. So I also appreciate your emphasis on that. Thank you. And kind of speaking towards that, too, a lot of our guests really harped on the importance of land acknowledgments. And I know there's a lot of like non-Native people who don't understand the importance of land to Indigenous people and, and really the importance of land in general. Can you speak a bit about the importance of that and also even dive into the erosion of, of language? Educate us about the destruction of land and language as you see it. Well, yes. As far as land acknowledgments go, they are a wonderful sentiment. And everyone who wishes to do one, we thank. It's a wonderful gesture, and it's a step in the right direction. It is only one step in the right direction, but, but it is a step. Our nation has actually come up with kind of a standard guidance for people. And one of the things we mention is that exactly that. Let this be one step. And if you really want to engage with us, contact us, bring us to your organization, learn with and from us. Something else that we like to mention is that we tend to shy away or recommend people shy away from language that reduces our relationship to the land as one of property ownership. So people might say something like, well, this land belongs to the Lenape, and we recognize that or this is the Lenape people's land. And we never had that conception, and we still don't. We never felt like this was our property or this was something that belonged to us. That's an idea that mostly came with the colonists. And it's an idea that really led to some of the problems with the treaty signings or the land signings we didn't really conceptualize those agreements as the colonists did. We approached this more as, well, of course you can share this land. We all do, and there's plenty of it. Not realizing that when we signed those papers, what it meant to them was, this is now theirs and you can't have it anymore because it belongs to somebody else. So we try not to copy that language in our land acknowledgements. We're happy to be acknowledged as the stewards of the Lenape Hoking or as the indigenous peoples here or having this recognized as our ancestral homeland. We just ask that people don't say that it's our property. Oh, and language. You had mentioned language. And that there's really a great tie, a wonderful tie between the land and the language. If you live around here anywhere throughout the Lenape Hoking, you can't drive 10, 20 miles without coming across the Lenape language. You know, whether it's something like actual Lenape Hall or Lenape Road, or whether it's words in our language that come from our language, like the Susquehanna, or the Unami Creeks, or Manigonk, or Glennoko, or so many other Mincy Trails. Our language still exists here. And 
that is incredibly important because ours is an incredibly dangerous language. And you had a speaker from Hawaii who was speaking about her language, and ours is very much that same case. Ours was not a written language, and our language was devastating, or I should say our, the people who spoke our language, they were devastated by colonialism. And we lost so many speakers of our language that one really reinforcing, kind of emboldening thing to our people now who are involved with language revitalization and trying to save our language from extinction, it is a source of some pride to look around and say, our name is still on those mountains or on that stream. And it's, it's an affirmation that we shouldn't need because of colonialism, we do need. It's an affirmation that this is where we come from and our language is still here. Well, Adam, you know, something that really appreciate Zach asking those questions and sort of tying land and language. And Adam, in your answer, you did the same thing. And, and one thing that really just occurred to me is that there was more to language, at least this is my understanding, but there was and is more to language than just words, right? Like that I think sometimes people hear about the erasure of language and it's like, well, but there's a replacement or something. But that that's so not true because the language contains stories, information, you know, lessons, history, and and still does. I know the revitalization, like there is, you know, a lot of work tying language to art and culture and, and storytelling. But can you speak a little bit about how the understanding, I think maybe when you spoke about the understanding of land that a lot of people who are influenced by the colonizer mindset, right, have, it's like one of ownership. But I, I also think there's something about the understanding of language that perhaps is different too. And I don't, I don't even really know how to articulate this question because it's just occurring to me in the moment. But I'm wondering if you can speak into that, the conception of language that people might have as just, oh, a, you know, words that can be easily translated or something versus language and it's significant within the Lenape nation, at least in your perspective. Absolutely. And, and there are technical aspects to this that have been well studied and, and well documented, even far further than my understanding. And then there are more abstract ideas about the language. And, um, some of those more technical things are that, I mean, language is inextricably tied into thought. It absolutely is. The way we conceptualize the world has everything to do with the way we speak about the world. Now, you can get into a chicken or an egg debate there, that linguists debate about, so I won't get into taking sides on that. But they all and everyone agrees that you think and speak, or I should say just that, your thoughts are impacted by the way you speak. Lenape is a very different language than English, very different language than most of the colonial languages that came over. And many Native American languages are similar, particularly, of course, we have the Algonquin language groups out here, and they tend to be vastly different than the colonial languages we have not just different words, not just the way our grammar works, but the way of speaking. 
also. So we probably all know about the, the study, the Inuit studies about there being different words for snow. And we see this kind of thing replicated all over the place. You know, we have many different words for rain, whether it is rain on the ground or whether it is rain that is currently falling or whether it is rain that is a fine mist. And you could go on for days and days about that. We have a gendered language technically in the linguistic sense, but it's not gendered as in male and female things like some romance language. Our language is gendered in living things and non-living things. So we have different grammatical endings. We have different uh, suffixes and, and affixes for things depending on whether we see them as living or not living. And some of those things can be very interesting. A lot of them go pretty common sense animals and people are living things and, and uh, bones and rocks are not, but you'll run into some things like our word for bucket, hoose. Uh, bucket is considered a living thing in our language, as is sun. And it's a green a little bit about the culture between those things. But on the whole, uh, the one thing I would say more than any other is that language ties into identity in an absolute way. The people who have much of the language and who have had them throughout the years and today, there are many people who have much of the language and they don't even know what it means. They might be ceremonial leaders who have memorized prayers in the language that their elders have taught them to memorize. And if you told them to sit down and write out word for word what this means in English, they couldn't do it. They can tell you the gist of what they're saying, but they never learned that translation process because what was important is that you were saying those prayers in your language, that you were talking to your relations and recognizing them in your language. And we still have many people who know large chunks of the language without knowing exactly what they mean because it's a source of cultural identity. And when I, now I am a fledgling teacher of the language. My mother is the rock star of, of the language. She's dedicated her life to it. But I will have occasion from time to time to, to one of our song singers or drummers will ask me, well, how do you say this in Lenape? And I'll give them a line or two, and they will take so much pride in that song because they're singing it in Lenape, and that's the only way they would sing it. They wouldn't have written those words in English and made it a song, but when they ask me and when I can tell them what their language is, that's when it becomes a song. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's part of your cultural identity. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. And Adam, I love that you mentioned your mother and the, the rock star, I think, which is awesome. Like, can you speak about to whatever extent you're comfortable speaking about, but ways that you remain grounded in your own indigenous heritage and culture and your, you know, and your Lenape identity or that element of your identity? One of the, the most important ways is to continue our traditions. And I still go to ceremony every year, multiple time, our, our annual ceremonies. I still go to our ceremonies. And 
there's our traditional ceremonies, and those are, of course, private. They're spiritual ceremonies. But then there are other more social, public, cultural traditions like powwow. A lot of people are get curious about powwow. They wonder if that's some kind of solemn cultural ceremony, and it's not. Powwow is like a carnival in the Native American community. It's usually all nations or, or open to the public. But both those, those solemn ceremonial traditions and also just participating in the culture beyond that, going to powwow, going to the drum. Now, I've taken a bit of a step further, and I am a member of tribal council. So I also stay immersed in my culture on that level. And I'm, I'm honored to sit beside my council members and clan mothers and make decisions for the direction of the nation, things like that. Here's a short message from our episode sponsors, without whose support the Demystifying Diversity podcast wouldn't be possible. As we've seen more than ever in the last couple of years, health is critical. And a big part of physical, mental, and emotional health is providing our bodies with the nutrients they need, which is why I'm a big fan of supplements. But not just any supplements. I get all my supplements from Vita Supreme. The company's products are amazing, and they're offering Demystifying Diversity podcast listeners 10% off on everything at their online store. In fact, they've put together a special Demystifying Diversity podcast listener page where you can get any or all of my favorite supplements at vitasupreme.com pages slash diversity Or you can take a look at their website and purchase any of their many products. When you're ready to check out, just enter the code DIVERSITY to receive your 10% discount. That's vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity and enter the code DIVERSITY for 10% off. As you may or may not be aware, Demystifying Diversity podcast partner Zach James is a proud graduate of Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management, STHM. Go Owls! And has experienced firsthand STHM's ongoing support and investment in each individual student. Both last season and this season, as part of their ongoing effort to prioritize diversity, equity, and inclusion in their business practices and strategic plan, STHM's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion has provided invaluable support and resources to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. And STHM's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion is taking an active role in so many other incredible initiatives, from spearheading student-facing DEI programming to faculty education to collaboration with various corporations and organizations. 
As the sport, tourism, and hospitality industries have become more globalized and integrated than ever before, STHM acknowledges their responsibility to help move these industries forward by minimizing polarization and creating equitable, inclusive, and diverse leaders. To learn more about Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management, visit sthm.temple.edu. That's sthm.temple.edu. Thank you for sharing that, Adam. Now, can you give us a little bit about what you're doing professionally in the space? Sure. Professionally, that's an interesting word. What I'll, I'll break that down into academically, for one. And I am in the English department, although I'm, I have a very multidisciplinary board. Academically, I reach into cultural linguistics and philosophy and psychology, as well as English. And my areas of research are uh, cultural studies and mythological studies. So I look at world mythologies all over the world. Of course, I have a focus in indigenous mythologies and with that in Lenape mythology. And right now I'm working on my dissertation. Unfortunately, COVID has been a huge issue for me. I had hoped to bring together one of the uh, an anthology of Lenape stories by traveling to all of our relations in the United States and Canada, or at least all of our nations. We know that you know we are everywhere but our identifiable nations and gathering stories. Of course, COVID has racked that to the wayside. As you, in one of your past um, episodes, you had people speak at length about how our communities are so particularly devastated. But that's in the works. In the meantime, on the other side of the, I guess you could call professional aisle, is my work with the nation. And aside from uh, just the, Looking after the nation, I have a number of roles. I'm on the state recognition committee. We are now working for state recognition, our nation. I'm also on the Rising Nation River Journey Committee. And we have that huge event that we do every four years that involves a three to four week trip down the Delaware River and treaty signings with uh, environmental organizations who want to be good stewards of the environment. So those are, those are some of the things that keep me busy. You know, Adam, I'm so glad I, I, I didn't really, we, we hadn't talked about Zach and I speaking specifically about COVID and, and its impact in this time together, but I'm glad that you mentioned that because I was thinking that there's a lot of work that you spoke about doing that is both kind of restorative and stewardship work, right? Like bringing things forward, regenerating, uh, revitalizing, right? And then at the same time, I think there's a lot of ongoing trauma, though, that is directly traceable to the mistreatment present and past of indigenous people and the lack of access to certain things. And and I'm wondering if you can speak into a little bit the cost of delaying a project such as such as yours, because I'm thinking about, you know, if people's communities are being decimated, if people are scared and uncertain, and there's a lot of loss of language that's already happening, you know, what happens when 
someone who who is wanting to tell stories and preserve and revitalize and and do this stewardship can't then go and and do this work because of something like COVID that's really impacting a Native community. I mean, can you kind of talk about that and like what's lost in that that delay? Well, I I don't know that there's much more to say about it than you've just said, but definitely to emphasize, it's it's an incredible loss. And we have stories every, it seems like every week, coming from some direction, that an important language keeper or native speaker of a language of some native community across the country has passed and is being mourned. Or, of course, not just language, just elders who keep that knowledge. And it is a devastating time. Not just, I mean, obviously, for the loss of the people and all the people personally affected, but also for all the people culturally affected by all the knowledge, the cultural knowledge that is being lost with many of these elders that have passed from COVID. What will it take for us to fight it, to realize that we all are one? Make unity and inner peace the only reason. Cause we need better, need so much better. We deserve better. Red, Thank you so much for sharing that, Adam, and for going into greater detail. I really, this has been so enriching so far. And certainly Zach and I are going to have more questions for you. But Adam, I'd love for you to answer some of the questions that listeners sent in. So I guess we'll just start with our first call-in question from a listener named Jenny from Queens. And I'll just play that for you now. And we'd love, Adam, uh, your answer to Jenny's question. Hi, this is Jenny from Queens, and, you know, I have a question. As you know, there's been a lot of discussion about racist foundations of Thanksgiving, uh, Columbus Day, and other widely recognized holidays. And I want to know if we're able to somehow reconcile those particular holidays for family gatherings such as Thanksgiving while honoring and acknowledging the genocide that it was founded upon. You know, is that something that's possible? Thanks. That's a great question. And some of your other interviewees had some wonderful insights on reconciling what so many people call Thanksgiving. There's such a pressure around that holiday. And it's not just, we tend to think of these things very academically, which is good. We need to. We have these conversations about privilege and disenfranchisement and correcting what's taught. And those are important, essential to have. But again, I keep coming back to our youth. And many of our youth are put in situations where maybe they're not ready to grasp those larger, important, but pretty academic subjects. And all they know is whether or not they're invited to the party, right? Because 
Thanksgiving in America is a day where you get together with your relatives and you eat all that great food and it's a fun time. And many Native children whose families don't take part in it for all those important reasons that they shouldn't, all the kids know is that they don't get invited to the party because mom and dad don't want to go. And that's an incredibly hard thing to really impress upon our youth, not to mention our adults who have to grapple with all the terrorism of the real answers that we don't celebrate. So I think that idea of reconciling is wonderful and of finding a way to let our children participate around this time in somewhat similar manner as all their friends at school are doing not telling them they can't have the fun time but giving them a different reason and who knows maybe it'll even catch on in the minds of the greater country now with thanksgiving like i said that's that's difficult and we have different people who have suggested different ways to use that as a day of mourning or a day of remembrance when it comes to something like columbus day We've had this, what is, in my opinion, a wonderful transition to Indigenous Peoples Day. Of course, that hasn't happened everywhere, but it's catching on. And I think what an amazing example of a way to continue the celebrations, but do it with a better history, with a more accurate history. Now, as far as actually reconciling Columbus and Indigenous Peoples Day, I mean, what I tend to do here is, again, I tend to take off my cultural hat and put on my, my just my thinking person's hat. We all know the, the things for which Columbus was responsible, and we all know the reasons why they are not something to celebrate. But just thinking, even taking the cultural element out of it and just thinking intelligently about it the question is what are we celebrating we're not celebrating today the columbus we celebrated 200 years ago nobody is no matter where they fall on the issue we are all more intelligent well i won't say we're more intelligent but we have learned more information we know that columbus can discover anything that no one else had discovered so if someone chooses to celebrate columbus's day today they know that they're not celebrating a discoverer of anything we know that columbus didn't do anything to bring life or improve life here so we're not celebrating a founder of america there are hundreds upon hundreds of people who were involved in establishing what is today the united states any one of them eligible for recognition and as time goes by, it's this isn't a political issue. It's just as we get more and more information, we realize there's less and less to celebrate about this person called Columbus. And people have to do more and more mental gymnastics and reach farther and farther to find something that is worthy of a person having a yearly holiday and a national yearly holiday. So from a cultural perspective, I think Indigenous Peoples Day is the perfect transition because we are still celebrating the foundation and the founding of the United States of America, but we are celebrating the people who contributed to it. But even if that's 
somebody is adamant about making it a European and thinking that that is somehow different than the United States, then I'd say, well, look at all your other men and women and other people who made important strides in establishing the United States because at least half of them with what we know now are going to be more worthy of a holiday than Columbus. Thank you so much. And I'm so glad. Thank you, Jenny, too, for the question. I think it was a really profound question and a very profound answer. We have another question from a Jennifer, not a Jenny, but a Jennifer from Columbus, Ohio. So thank you, Jennifer. And let's play that one. Hi, my name is Jennifer, and I'm calling from Columbus, Ohio. And I recently listened to your episode on Indigenous Resilience. And the question that I have for you is, as a white person, how can I become a better ally? The only answer I can give that is contact your Indigenous people and ask them that question. And the reason that's all I can say is because, of course, I can't speak for all of our relations throughout the country. We all have different challenges and different ways where, where help would be helpful to us. I can speak just for an example. Here um, in Myrian, Lenapahokan, literally anything you can do to increase awareness of the facts, not only that we were the people that were here, but more importantly, that we are still here. Anything you can do to that end is so important because we are so incredibly erased here. On the whole, as Native Americans, of course, we've all been erased. And with our particular plight as Lenape, who are still here in our homeland, we have even a second layer of erasure where our story is almost never told. So, you know, if somebody local to me were to ask, that's my answer in whatever way, whether it's bringing us into the classroom or into their college or community or taking our language class or just telling people that, hey, I had this conversation with a member of the Lenape Nation. Did you know that they're still here? Just that much is, is so important. But other nations may have other needs. They might, some nations, they have food shortages. Many nations are, we are fortunate to not have been too terribly afflicted by COVID in our nation, where other nations have been. We've actually sent support to our relations who have been. So look up the people by you and ask them, you know, what can we do to support you? Thank you so much for that answer, Adam. And, you know, I think it's just a reminder, like the importance of land and the importance of thinking on a more local, more interpersonal, more meaningful, tangible level, right? Because, you know, I really just appreciate that Jennifer asked that question. And then also, Adam, as you pointed out, there is no one answer, just like there's no one indigenous experience, right? It's all about investigating and taking the time to get curious about your local community and how you can support those people and maybe thinking more broadly 
beyond that after first thinking more locally. So I really, really appreciate the nuanced nature of your answer. And Jennifer, so appreciate your question. We have another question, a calling question from a listener named Sabrina. So I'll play that for you now. Hi, my name is Sabrina, and I actually have a question. So based on the lessons learned about agricultural and environmental racism and how it impacts indigenous communities, how can I affordably buy groceries without supporting these practices? Thank you so much. That is a difficult question. Now, as far as if I take it in parts, as far as the environmental racism, that is incredibly important. And I think it's important to add on to that, that it's not always just environmental racism. Very often, it's environmental classism. The speaker was absolutely right. If the, the white powers that be voted out of their community then put it through the Indians, yes, that is absolutely environmental racism. But we see that also happen among class lines with people who are not as economically privileged and who have not had as much access to academia, schooling, and aren't aware of environmental issues, we see these pipelines going through more and more poorer and less formally educated neighborhoods, in addition to racial lines, racial minority neighborhoods. And these are things that need to be opposed. They really are. So on the larger, on the larger battlefield of that agricultural and environmental stewardship, I can't emphasize enough the importance to be aware of what's going on around you, whether it's pipeline, whether it's fracking, whether it's just the development, and get in touch with not only your, your local indigenous groups, but your environmental organizations. We are very, just so wonderfully connected out here with a lot of wonderful stewards of the environment, people like the Friends of the West Hicken, the Audubon Society, Delaware River Keeper Network, and watershed organizations. Those folks almost all the time know what's going on before we do. So on the larger scale of just protecting the environment and making a place for that agriculture and keeping, safekeeping a place for that agriculture, Get in touch with your, your local partners who really dedicate their time to those things and take part however you can to oppose yeah. any projects that would destroy or be harmful to the land. Now, as far as how to afford your food, yes, uh, we know that things like organic food and good practice, there's a word for it, better practices food tends to be more expensive. And that's a problem. And, and people know it's a problem. And I don't have a good solution for that for you. I have a good solution for that for policymakers and for people that really run these things. They're the ones who have to address that and make incentives for people to farm and to perform agriculture in a way that's good for the land. They need to be incentivized or at least not be penalized. But until then, all I can say is just do the best you can. That's that's all any of us can do. And you know, if you if your budget only allows you know the frozen food section at the local grocery store, don't beat yourself up about it. 
take part in the larger things that'll hopefully correct that and make the fresh foods section just as affordable someday. Thank you so much, Adam. I really appreciate you speaking about the intersection of race and class and economics and the fact that these are often very complicated dynamics and also the recognition that, you know, we don't know Sabrina's situation, right? Or what's affordable for any specific person. And I love that you stress that there's something that each of us can do on whatever level, whether it's changing our individual food consumption practices, writing to our local Congress people, you know, reaching out to environmentalist groups, some combination of all of these things, connecting with our local indigenous communities. You know, one thing that I will say that that is really helpful, I think, in terms of food consumption habits, if it's possible and affordable is to buy more local. And also like one question I like to think about is where is my food coming from? Because I think for me personally, and again, you know, this is an issue of affordability and accessibility and some people live in food deserts, but thinking critically about my consumption habits can just change those a little bit. So thank you again, Sabrina, for the question. And Adam, thank you for the answer. We had an email question, and this email question comes in from Steve in Colorado. So I'm going to read what Steve wrote. Steve wrote, thank you so much for the podcast. I wanted to ask if you'd speak more specifically about the problem of mascots. We live in a time today where sports teams and colleges are slowly eliminating indigenous groups and indigenous caricatures as their mascots. Most recently, the Cleveland team changed their names to the Cleveland Guardians and have forever retired the racist character, the racist chief that they had. I'm not going to repeat the name. Just as an example, Steve writes, while some of the most blatant harmful depictions have been eliminated, why are specific names of tribes in collegiate sports, such as Seminoles, Chippewas, and Fighting Alini, allowed to endure? Is there any difference in the harm these depictions create versus terms like the Cleveland team formerly had? So Adam, I know that that question is chock full of different threads. I guess if you could speak a little bit more about mascots and also is there a differentiation between some of these names that are, you know, like tribal names or names that are being used versus some of the other names and mascots that are perhaps more like taking themes or caricatures. Just from your own experience, your own perspective, how should people be thinking about these things? I think I addressed some of that earlier when I was talking about mascotry. And of course, again, I have to iterate that I I can't speak for all people. I'm just here speaking for my own thoughts on the subject. There are many different iterations of these things. They all have issues, but the issues are different. Uh, Like I said before, some of them, you just have to look at the picture to see the issue. And if it's a big, literally person with red skin and a big feather headband and a big nose jumping around with a tomahawk, well, the conversation can end there. It's just obviously needs to be changed. Other things are, are more subtle. Now, this person is talking about why are, it sounds like the question was, why are some things able to persist? And it seemed like they were rattling off names of tribes or nations. Uh, I think those are specific names of tribes that have been listed in collegiate sports. So I think some sports teams, and Zach, you can hop on in here because I don't know anything about college sports, but 
Fighting Illini was uh, the one that was for uh, the Illinois football uh, team. Okay, so these these are collegiate sports teams that have tribal names. Mm-hmm. Florida State mm, Seminoles. Got it. Yep. Okay. Yes, I'm I'm ignorant to that as well. Now, but I've had this come up. There's a, I believe it's a high school team around us called the Lenape. And this is a, a different kind of issue, right? Because this is just a word. As far as I know, there's no mascot involved. So the question becomes, can we call our name our team after your tribe? And we can't say that this is a problem of history because we're still here. But it just seems weird to me. Why would you... I don't see the reason behind it. it. It feels like kind of a back road or a backdoor approach to being able to still have that historical entrenchment. When a team calls themselves the, the Braves or the Raiders, as problematic for all the definitions of those words that those are, I guess what they're trying to say about their team is that they are warriors, or they are fighters or something. What, what are they trying to say about their team when they call them the Seminoles? That they are Seminole? Are they trying to say that their people are Lenape? Because I'm, I'm pretty sure they're not. So it's the, the first way it hits me is just strange. And why would you want to do it? Why would you want to call your players indigenous when they're not? I love Adam, that you answered that with a question, because I think that it's so disarming, right? Like, I, I think that sometimes people go on the defensive about like, well, we're entitled to this, and it should be, and it's always been this way. And, you know, don't you understand the importance? But really, I think when you break it down and ask, what is the reason and what are you trying to communicate or convey? I don't know that these teams would really have an answer, or if that is the answer, I think it's very insufficient given the potential damage that could be done, or even just given the fact that we know by now that it's not okay to play another race in a pageant, right? Or to use blackface or something like that, right? Like we just, we we don't play other people. We don't convey other identities. And so why suddenly is it okay to do that in a sports arena? So I, I love that you asked that provocative question and hopefully people are listening to this and are so inspired, please write in to your sports teams or organizations, whether high school, collegiate, professional teams, whatever it is. And later in the season, we will be doing an episode on sports and diversity in sports. But like, definitely take that time to take a stand. It is weird. And I wonder about the damage that it does. You know, I mean, I don't know, but I know that there's been a lot of research that shows that mascots are incredibly damaging. And Adam, you mentioned the youth that suicide rates increase when mascots are allowed to proliferate, right? And they decrease when the mascots are are done away with, the appropriate mascot. You know, I don't know. I think as, as you pointed out, Adam, it is different, but I, I don't know that it's psychologically healthy. So, you know, I hope people will, will continue to question themselves and question the teams that they support. Again, I'm not very sports oriented. I didn't think about it right away, but I'd really be interested in some kind of study that examined how many sports teams are given Native American names versus how many non-competitive teams, how many chess clubs or dance groups or bands or something. Because you have all these names 
in sports, right? You have Braves, you have Raiders, you have all of these names that suggest you are warriors who are fighting and doing violence. That is one of the biggest stereotypes that we fight against in sports memos is that we are equated with violence and savagery. And now you have, okay, well, it's, we're not calling you any of those things. We're just using your name. It's just Lenape or Seminole, right? Um, but we're still in that sports arena. You're putting us there uh, in this arena where there are huge war metaphors. I mean, everything about the gridiron is all about, you know, combating each other and these violent sports, not, not taking an ethical stance against the sports, but I mean, you know, football's a violent sport. You run into each other. And even when you get into other sports, baseball and things, it's competitive. So I think you're still making an association between Native Americans and uh, the enemy or one of two people on fighting sides and still making that equation towards violence. I have a question for you, Adam. Out of curiosity, how would you feel if it were only sports that actually originated in the indigenous culture for example let's say if it were lacrosse teams who decided to name themselves after tribes how would you feel about that scenario that's a really great question and i think i would feel the same i don't think my opinion would change now if that you know if lacrosse players did something to acknowledge the roots of their sport that would be great, you know, uh, publicly. But I think you would just run into the same problem. So much of what we do has its roots in Native American culture, and we don't recognize it today, or we erase it today. That I think the same would just happen with lacrosse, where people would use the problematic language and images, but as an excuse to try to justify it, say, well, this was founded by Native Americans, so it's okay. Wow. Yeah. Well, you know, Adam, you spoke about using and misappropriating things. And one of the themes that was really striking to me was learning about the great Iroquois law of peace and especially how that was taken and adapted and that some of the elements were retained, but also some of it was corrupted and misappropriated in a way that it no longer maintained its original intended structure and some of the important components. And so to that end, we actually had three different people email us, Susie, Gina, and Umberto, with slightly different variations of the same question. So I'm going to just kind of collapse all of their emails into one question and put it in my own words. But each of them, Susie, Gina, and Umberto, so thank you all so much for writing in. They asked about the seven generations principle, and each of them stated, and you know, slightly different ways, but along the same line, that the seven generations principle was a really new concept for them. And they wanted to know more about how to maybe implement this principle in meaningful ways, whether personally, professionally, socially, culturally, in ways that are not demeaning or appropriative to Native cultures, but also to sort of use this seven generations principle as perhaps a catalyst for positive change. So Adam, I know that's a really big and broad question, but I'd love if you could speak a little more about the seven generations principle and yeah, can people apply it in any ways in their lives? Sure. And, and they most definitely can. And 
this principle is just part of being Native American. And I am very careful to avoid over-romanticizing Native Americans, and I caution people against it. You know, we've had this swing lately where most people are not blatantly derogatory towards Native Americans anymore. Some are. But we've moved away from that as a social consciousness. But very often we tend to swing in the opposite, but also a harmful direction of just kind of over-romanticizing all Native Americans, really do kind of believe in that we're all the same and we just have always all sit in the grass and brought all the animals to us in our glade and just, I don't know, smoked a peace pipe and, and things. And although that may be a kinder image than what preceded them, it's just as dehumanizing. We are all individuals, and our clans and our nations have our own ways, and we are different. So I want to put that disclaimer because this can sound like over-romanticizing, but this is one thing that does seem to be common among every Native American society, at least that I have encountered, and that has not been all, so I'm leaving room for, for error there. But the idea of the seven generations whether it is worded that way or not, seems to just be part of what it is to be Native American. The idea of a of living a life of conservation and of respect for your environment, for your relations. And your relations are not just the two-leggeds, they're the four-leggeds and the winged ones and the creepy crawlers and the grandfather rocks and the standing trees and everything under the sun. And this idea of conservation, you know, people, sometimes environmental groups will ask, what environmental conservation methods did you take traditionally as a nation? And we can offer one or two things here and there, like the Three Sisters way of planting or our conservational hunting, where we would never hunt the first animal we came across, but we'd pass upon it and, and hunt the second sure one was always left behind but other than a few examples like that it's just a state of mind and it's ingrained as far back as our creation and emergent stories in the stories of all of our culture heroes in the stories we tell in every ceremony and of the little cultural advice that we give our children about walking softly on the earth so whether or not i mean Thinking of the seven generations is great. We have the tradition of the seven generations in our nation. And just like your other speaker said, um, anything we do of any significance, we think about how it will affect the next seven generations. Just keeping that in your mind is great. But that is just one guideline of just living a life of respect and conservation for everything around you. And what that really just takes is humility and awareness just not leaving more footprint than you need to and thinking what will be left after you're done. Hi listeners, Zach here. Darylise and I are so grateful you're listening to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. We want to answer your questions about topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. 
And this season, during each of our question and answer episodes, we'll be joined by a special guest expert who can also weigh in on whatever questions you have. So call us at 844-888-8148 and leave us a message with your question or drop us a note through our website at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. Who knows, your voice or your question might make it into one of our Q&A episodes. Thank you so much. You know, Adam, I had asked this question of Jacqueline Russell in our interview, but I want to ask you the same question. And essentially what I asked her was, you know, you're part of your Indigenous nation and also part of this larger category of Indigenous people, and you're also an individual within that. And so how do you navigate your identity while being part of a larger umbrella category of Indigenous. So Adam, that's what I asked Jacqueline, and I'm going to ask you, how do you navigate being a Lenape person and having an individual identity and being part of this larger category of Indigenous? And how does being part of all of these categories support you or problematize things for you? So can you speak a little bit to that? That's a great question. And I have to say, I personally... I do not have much conflict, much dissonance at this point in my life. I can say that. Now, that was not always the case. Growing up, I was hugely conflicted, though much so that for a large part of my um, adolescent life, I didn't involve myself with the nation at all. I would go to ceremony because I enjoyed that, and I would learn language with my mother. I wasn't interested in what council was doing or never ever would have dreamed that I would be on council sometime. And that dissonance for me came from a number of areas. And one of them is the process of recognition. Being a non-recognized tribe, I was often conflicted about my identity, especially having to navigate some of these tensions that grow up across this federal line between federally and non-federally recognized tribes. Fortunately, I, I reconciled all that. And for me, it was coming to college. It was going to the college environment and having some professors who, once they found out just happenstance about my culture, were good enough not to let me forget it in my studies, really to insist that I bring it in in the most kind, respectful way. And that is when I really was able to blend together my, my professional and my academic life with my cultural life. And I will never forget those people who, who kind of pulled me by the nose to do that rather than to keep this one part of me private and then be a professional person when I walked into the classroom. So now the class I actually designed and taught at Temple is on Native American identity. I'm very interested in, in processes of identity. And there is so much that goes into someone's identity that I'm finally at a comfortable place where none of these things are who I am. I don't walk into the classroom as a professor. I joke about taking my hat off when I'm conversating. Just this weekend, I was at Nising ceremony, and I don't leave my my professional life behind me and walk in there as a Lenape member of council. 
I'm Adam Waterbear. And my chief gave me that name because I'm a river rat. I love to be on the water. And because Bear is a teacher. And my chief thought on that name and thought about my professional life and brought that into my name. So that's now today, after tumult of growing up during adolescence and then developing all that, today, that's just who I am. And when I'm in the classroom, I can answer a question about counsel as quickly as I can about obviative case. And when I'm sitting around the fire at Meesing, I can tell the story of Meesing or tell people what an obviative case is. <laughs> and I, I don't feel like I'm changing people. So Adam, what were your major takeaways from the two episodes, Indigenous Resilience and Indigenous Culture, Land and the Seventh Generation Principle? Well, the first thing I have to say, um, selfishly, I just adored hearing everything from, was it Fern who was from Hawaii? Uh, yes. Yep. Yes. I am ashamedly ignorant of Indigenous life in Hawaii, so I was very interested to hear the particular circumstances that they went through as an island and as a non-continental island. It sounds very much was similar to what we experienced here, but some different things as well. Like I said before, I've had many conversations about Columbus Day. I haven't had that many conversations, strangely enough, about Thanksgiving. Whereas Columbus Day seems to be a debate. There are a lot of people who hotly debate it. Thanksgiving seems, at least in my experience, to be more of a, of, uh, you don't talk about it. Or people will say, well, you know, we understand that the history is wrong. We're still going to get together so we can all eat and, and see family and things and kind of just excuse or pass the history by, by not acknowledging it. And I was really interested in hearing speakers, different approaches to ways to alternate ways to act. I won't say celebrate, right. whether it's mourn or remember, but alternate things to do during Thanksgiving. But on the whole, no two people, let alone two nations, have the same story. But on the broad spectrum, so many people from all over the U.S., continental and non-continental, have so many of the same traumatic experiences in their cultural history that we really need to recognize that. Were there anything in the episodes or even in our conversation today that you may have wanted to say or, or learn about or hear? Yeah, they were really thorough. The episodes were great and had, you know, most of the really important talking points. The one thing I didn't hear come up is the process of recognition. And that is, I think, one of the major problems that we have in the country today. And even once Darylise gave those 11 or 12 tips, ways to act at the end of, of one of her episodes, and they were great. But one of them was make sure if you purchase native goods, make sure you purchase them from a native community and not from a non-native community. And that's great advice, but the follow-up question is, well, what is a Native community? And what is not a Native community? Mm -hmm. And how does the consumer make that decision? And one of the most often 
acted upon answers is, well, ask the government. The government will tell you who's native and who's not. And this is a problem. I can imagine. Oh, yeah. The government, through these processes of recognition, the government draws lines through native communities. It says, you folks are real Indians and you folks are not. And then around those lines, tensions evolve. Right. And our, our relations who have federal recognition, they are put in a situation where they have to defend that status because the government has given it to them. And defending that important status often leads to excluding, trying to close the gate and make sure nobody else has it. And this happens in every instance I have studied. And again, that has not been all. But every instance I've come across of Native Americans, regardless of tribe, regardless of geography, if there's a federal recognition, it leads to, it's a perfect example of divide and conquer, where that line causes more harm in the community than it helps. And then it turns nations against each other, and then the government can just wash their hands anything they've done to cause it. Right. Another kind of question that's, you know, I think different than, than some of the things we've been discussing. What's your opinion on the impact of the gaming and casino industry on indigenous people? Now, that ties right into the issue of, of recognition. Now, I cannot speak from firsthand experience. We do not have a casino. We are not a recognized tribe. But I can tell you that there are nations that depend on those casinos and and thrive because of them. Now, taken in context, it seems like a sorry scrap to be thrown off the table. Mm -hmm. After the government takes everything else and says, well, you can have a casino. And we know that many problems do tend to rise around nations with casinos. We tend to have class divisions, wealth divisions, Um, in some, but not all. So casinos are not a bad thing. I'll say that straight out. And and again, many of our relations and many other nations, they depend on the casinos. But the reason they have to depend on the casinos is because it's the only option they've been afforded. They've been sanctioned by the government um, to be recognized federally so first of all the government says okay you're native american and now you can have a casino if you meet all of our paperwork requirements to maintain your status as a federally recognized tribe Mm -hmm. why is it our only option right why are so many nations dependent on a getting the government to call them native american so they can be have a casino that will bring in enough income. Nothing to say that's a bad way to support your people, but why is that the only way we have? And the answer to that is everything we haven't been allowed to participate in for the whole history of the country. Hi, Zach James here, partner and marketing manager of the Demystifying Diversity Podcast 
and I wanted to share with you, our valued listeners, some of the awesome things we're doing in the DEI space. Myself, Darylise, and the whole Demystifying Diversity team are facilitating corporate trainings, constructive conversations, workshops, one-on-one coaching sessions, and so much more. To find out how you can work with us, whether you're an individual or representing a corporation, school, or any other organization, head over to DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com backslash services to fill out our DEI survey. Darylise is a DEI subject matter expert, having interviewed over 200 people, having become a TEDx speaker, as well as the author of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Together, we can help you up-level your DEI skills to improve your profitability, productivity, and interpersonal relationships. So, connect with us at DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com backslash services and get yourself a copy of Darylise's book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. And uh, don't forget, buy the workbook too. Happy learning. So Adam, how can people support the work that you're doing personally and professionally? Is there any way our listeners can be supportive to you? There's lots of ways. Like I said before, the simplest way. Well, let me start at the other end. There's a very direct way. Um, Our nation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. All the cultural and educational programs we do, we fund through donations. So if people are interested in donating to the nation, they can go to our website, which is lenape-nation.org, and they can donate through the website. But beyond that, there are many events and happenings we have going on. We give talks about our language. We hold our language class. We're teaching five language classes a week right now, trying to revitalize the language. We hold powwow. We do uh, lots of events all we can to really raise awareness that we are still here. I've talked about how important that is. So people can also go on our website or email the nation and find out uh, upcoming events and come to powwow and meet us, you know, and dance, have a good time, bring your kids to do the candy dance and <laughs> learn some of our ways. And then go tell people, hey, I was at a Lenape powwow. Of course, if you have this platform, it's wonderful to invite us in the classrooms, any K through 12 or collegiate to tell either to give presentations on our culture or to consult on curriculum and syllabi and things like that. But all of that boils down to just raising awareness. And if what you can do is just go around and say, hey, I saw this podcast, you know, that the Lenape Nation is in Pennsylvania and that they still do stuff, that is huge. That's one more person, one more person that knows us, that thought we left or never existed because that's the line they got from their history books. Thank you so much. We will put a link to the website in the show notes so that people can feel free to share, to click, to donate, to learn, you know, and to get involved in ways that are meaningful and then to share their experiences with other people and get more people to get involved in ways that are meaningful. So thank you so much. And Darylise, we have one last question for Adam, but before we get to that, let's take a minute to do our first book giveaway of season two. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks for reminding me about that, Zach. So we drew a name at random before starting recording this Q&A episode. And the lucky winner, Zach, do you want to do the honors? Indeed. It is Mark Smith. 
Uh, so congratulations, Yay. Mark. You've won a copy of Darylise's book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity, and its accompanying workbook. Awesome. Congratulations, Mark. We'll send you an email and get your information so we can mail you signed copies of the book and the workbook. Thank you so much for subscribing to our newsletter and being um, being invested in this. So Adam, as Zach mentioned, I have one last question for you. Why do you do what you do? Why is this so important to you personally and why should it matter to other people? It's important to me personally for everything we've discussed and for everything your other speakers discussed on your shows, for all of the racism and classism that has happened, for all the wrongs that need to be addressed and all the people that never had a voice that need to be spoken for. It is absolutely important to me for all those reasons. However, it is also important to me because it is me. There is no, I don't feel there's a way to describe the feeling, and even feeling seems such a weak word, but when you have a connection to your culture, and particularly when you have a connection to your culture that goes back to the very roots of the mountains on the land that you occupy, there is a feeling that is I don't feel like pride is the right word, not even comfort, but something on that spectrum. There's a place of belonging and a calmness that comes from knowing who you are and that you are where you have always been and your people have always been. So I am very much interested in correcting the misinformation and addressing the wrongs that have been done. But beyond that, it is simply my identity. And it, every time I do anything, say a word in the language or teach one class or one presentation about my people, I'm just more comfortable than I was before. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Indeed, indeed. Thank you so much, Adam, for joining us today. Thank you all for listening wherever you are. If you're listening to this and you want to get in touch with Adam, please contact Adam at what's the best place to, to reach out to you, Adam? Sure. My uh, email address is uh, my name with a period. So it's adam.depaul at temple.edu. Awesome, Adam. And if you haven't already, please like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. And if you'd like to ask us a question or have a comment, please call us at 844-888-8148, and we'll try to answer or respond in an upcoming Q&A episode. Also, visit DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com to subscribe to our newsletter and learn about our DEI trainings, workshops, coaching, consulting, and other DEI services. Every episode of Demystifying Diversity Podcast is written, reported, and produced by Darylise Lyons.
With the invaluable assistance of co-collaborator and marketing manager, Zach James, production and development assistant, Stuart Kreintz, and content editor and creative collaborator, Sunny Taylor. So thank you all. Indeed. And the music you heard uh, during our podcast is Better by Brittany Monet. Thank you again, Adam. Thank you so much. And thank you to the listener. Um, Please join us next week as we dive into LGBTQ exclusion. And in the meantime, let's keep trying to make this a better, more inclusive world.